and just rip it in half. So it was like, he dies. And then immediately he's like on top of the temple, just everybody gets to come in. Amen. Praise God. So last week, so anyways, we're getting to the resurrection now. So we're going to save that for um, Easter Sunday because that's what we want to study on Easter Sunday. So we're going to take um, this week and next week and go really, really slow because we only got like 12 verses left till we get to resurrection. Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some other aspects of Jesus on the cross. Some Old Testament. Today we're going to focus on one of the most powerful Old Testament um, prophecies of Jesus on the cross in all of the Bible. Now, there's three places, and there's probably more, and for some of you Bible students and scholars, you would know better than me, but there's three places my mind goes to immediately when I think of um, Old Testament prophecies of Jesus and and exactly what, what he would go through and face on the cross. The first one is Genesis chapter 22. Abraham takes Isaac up onto Mount Moriah. Do you know where Jesus was crucified? on the very same spot, up onto Mount Moriah thousands of years later. And this whole story of Abraham and Isaac, as you, as you look at Genesis 22, you, you see that God wove through the pages of history prophetically a perfect model, a perfect prediction of thousands of years later what Jesus would go through. Do you, do you know when Isaac was, when Abraham brought Isaac up onto Mount Moriah, we study that story maybe in our Sunday school, and maybe we picture Isaac as a little boy, but Isaac in the, in the real story is 33 years old. He's a grown man. He goes willingly. His father, who is older and aging, who's 133 years old, 32 years old, or 133 years old, Isaac was born when Abraham was 100. He, he puts the wood on, on Abraham's, on Isaac's back, and Isaac carries the, the wood to the place of Calvary where thousands of years later. So anyways, Psalm 22, identical. Then, then you come to Genesis 22, and we're going to study that one today. And it's just a picture uh, a thousand years before Jesus dies on the cross. King David, who's a psalmist of Israel, is pinning... Um, He's writing Psalm 22, 23, 24 in this trilogy, and he, he writes exact detail of Jesus dying on the cross. We'll see that today. And then the next place you think of is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, by your stripes we are healed. So if you have those, if you're a note taker, Genesis 22, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, those are kind of the main ones. Isaiah chapter 9 is, is the same type of prophecy, but not concerning Jesus' death. It's actually concerning his birth. So today, we're going to take a hard, awesome, powerful look at a thousand-year-old prophecy of, of, of what we've been studying in Matthew 27. And we're going to see that God tells the end from the beginning. You know what separates you and I? You know what separates Christians from anybody else? You know what separates the Word of God from everything else in the world? That God dares to an only holy book, really, that does this. The only holy book that ventures to tell the end from the beginning. God speaks things a thousand years before they happen as if they already happened. Because in his mind, they already happened. He already seen it. It's not like he's predicting what's going to happen in the future. It's like he was standing there and he heard what the guy said to Jesus on the cross. And then he goes back a thousand years and he writes it down. And it's that accurate. What Lydia is going to study with you ladies on Tuesday night is a prophecy of the statue of Daniel. 
And, and, and Daniel has a dream, and in the dream he sees this statue, and it's made up of different types of metals, a head of gold and a, breast, uh, a chest of silver and, and legs and thighs of brass and, um, and, and legs of iron and toes of, of mixed with clay and iron. And, and this is an exact prophecy as God gives Daniel the interpretation of the powers of the world that are going to be in place, so much so that the book of Daniel has been so highly ridiculed by the skeptics because there's no way that Daniel could have could have um, so accurately predicted thousands of years how would he know there was not even these these kingdoms and these powers weren't even a thing yet when Daniel prophesied that they would come on the scene and exactly as Daniel prophesied through the statue in Daniel chapter 9 of the head of gold which was Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom that they would be overthrown by the by the Medo-Persians and then, and then on and through history, all the way down to the Romans. And then we get to the toes of iron and clay. I'm preaching Lydia's message. So you guys don't got to come on Tuesday night. Huh? Okay. So the, the, the toes and uh, the, the, um, the, uh, the, the revised Roman Empire that's coming. And everybody said there's no way that Daniel wrote that when he did. But guess what? God wrote it because God knew the future. And he gives us prophecy. And I don't know how they quantify this, you guys. And, and it has to do with lots of, lots of different things. We'll see one today that's very powerful. But I think the number is um, 25% of the Bible is prophetic. It's prophecy. It, it's God telling things before they happen. Again, no, nobody else. You can challenge your friends. You can challenge in, your, you know, in a loving way, right, as we talk about these things. Show me a prophecy in another holy book that's come true. And yet the Bible has 400 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills in his life and his death on the cross. Have you guys ever heard the, the, the statistics of one man fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, the, the mathematical probability of that? There's some guy, um, he's a really good friend of mine, and he has a head and it's kind of funny shaped, and it kind of pulses like this. And so he did a math problem, and he went through the Old Testament prophecies, and, and, and he, he came up with a number uh, of the, the probability, like winning the lottery, that, that of all the Old Testament prophecies, that one person could actually fulfill them all. And he came up with a number that you have to have one of those heads like he has in order to be able to even understand, but it's like to the 17th power, 7, 6 to the 7th power, something that doesn't make sense to any of us anyways. But this, this is the equivalent. You, you could take this number, if it were turned into silver dollars, you could take this amount of silver dollars, and, and from border to border, you could cover the state of Texas in silver dollars, and they would come up to two feet high. And, and then if you painted one red, and, and you, you hit it among the, the entire state of Texas, and then you put a guy in an airplane with a parachute, and at any point he wanted blindfolded, he could jump out of the plane, Dig through the coins and pull one out. The chance that he would find the one painted red coin in the state of Texas, that's the, the probability that, that Jesus could fulfill all of these prophecies. And, 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 you know, Jesus said to, or the Bible says that we should, we should give the entire counsel of God's word. It's one of the mantras here for our church, for me personally. It's just something that I, I believe in, that I try to live by. Is that, is that the Bible says, Paul said, I have not shunned to declare to you the entire counsel of God's word. And so that's why we try to make it our aim to teach through every chapter and every verse of the Bible. And, and in that, if, if 25% of the Bible is prophecy, it's important that we cover prophecy. Amen? 
Okay? And, and the reason why I say that is because there is a little bit of a cultural wave going through some of the churches. And, and I just want to let you know that that wave don't live here. But that, that, that wave is, is quit beating on your prophecy drum. Quit trying to scare the young people. The young people don't care about when Jesus is coming back and, and, and all that stuff. You know, it's just, it's, they're not into that. Stop beating on your, your prophecy drum. And, and, and that's the wave that's going through. But again, that wave don't live here. So if, when I get a drum, I'm going to beat on it with prophecy. And today is one of those days. Amen? All right. That was the short intro. I'll give you the real intro in a minute. Hey, I want to share with you guys. Actually, I wanted to share something with you guys before we got into that. But um, financially, I want to talk about finances for the church a little bit. Um, <clears throat> we have been um, honestly so amazingly blessed by everybody here who has believed in what God's doing in the remodel project that we started, the purchasing of this building. If, without going into too much detail, if we think about, um, was it October? No, it would have been July. July of, of last year, we had $62,000 as a church. They approached us and asked us if we wanted to. At the time, we didn't have Lincare. We had three buildings. We paid $4,000 a month in um, rent to rent the three buildings that we have. They approached us and they said, by the time it's all done, you guys can own the building. You can be building equity. You can get the Lincare side and, and you'll pay $1,000 less a month in mortgage in, when you own it. So we're like, that's a no-brainer. There's only pro- one problem. We're $60,000 short. So we prayed and, and we stepped out in faith and we presented. And in times past for us as a church, we have, um, because Lydia and I come from a big, huge church in Southern California and God has been faithful and good to us. We, we had a, I had a couple phone calls I could make to a few people that um, believe in what we're doing and can afford it. And, and they have sent us some big checks in the past. And when it came to um, this particular 60000 I didn't do that. I didn't call not a one of them. I said, for this one, we've done that in the past, and God was faithful, and God's helped us from outside of our church. But for this particular deal, I think we're in a season as a church that, that we need to um, just see if there's buy-in on our own part because we can't build something um, that the people who are a part of don't believe in and are not giving to and, don't, and are not willing to make sacrifices to see happen, and we can't just have the outside people pay for it. One of, one of the guys I was in Bible college with was a guy named Vlad, and Vlad and Saveta are um, Russians, born and raised in Russia, came to Yucca Valley, to Joshua Springs, when him and I just happened to land there in the same time in September of 1996. We spent two years together in Bible college. Vlad graduated and went back and, and started a church in Russia, in Nizhny Novgorod, the first Calvary Chapel in Nizhny Novgorod, one of the largest Calvary chapels today in, in, in Russia. And, and Vlad has served faithfully in Russia um, since he got back to Russia in 98. So um, just this last year, Vlad came through our church. Was anybody here to remember Pastor Vlad when he was here? Praise God, your hands raised. So Pastor Vlad was called to turn the church over in Nizhny to, to an indigenous Russian pastor who has been his assistant pastor and he'd been training up for about 10 years. And to start all over, he's my age. Actually, Vlad's a couple years older than me, so he's 30. Um, and, and he was called at, at his age to just completely step out in crazy faith and go to a country, Georgia, the country Georgia, where he doesn't speak the language and, and doesn't read or write. And he speaks English and Russian and Spanish, but he doesn't speak, you know, Georgian. Do this just for fun. Don't do it right now. Or if you want to, you can, I guess. Google the Georgian alphabet. <laughs> 
It, it looks like you talk about like like hieroglyphics or like Chinese houses and stuff that try to make. I mean, it is the craziest alphabet you've ever seen in your life. So, anyways, he he steps out in faith, and, and then after they make the decision to step out in faith, God gives him sixty thousand dollars from some guy that came and visited Russia. Um, on a missionary team, a short-term missionary team from one of the Calvary chapels that he hasn't had contact with in, in 10 years. The guy calls him out of the blue and says, God put, me on, put you on my heart, and we want to help you. What do you got going on in the ministry right now? And Vlad says, well, he says, my wife and I are leaving Nizhny Novgorod after 22 years of pastoring Calvary Chapel in Nizhny Novgorod, and, and, and we're going to Georgia, and, and we need to find a place to live. And so he said, well, the guy said, well, what are, what are, the, you know, what are your needs? And Vlad said, oh, he was thinking big. He's like, well, like five grand would really help. And he said, well, but we need a house. And then the guy said, well, how much do the houses cost? And, and Vlad said, well, we're looking at a house, three-story house. It's like 3,000 square feet. It's from me to Josh to the river, beautiful river, big, huge river, beautiful location, $55,000. So anyways, Vlad tells him what this house is. And the guy's like, is that all you need? And he sends him 65000 Vlad's like, dang, I should have asked for more. So, so Vlad is there in Russia, and they're remodeling this house. One of the problems is the house, they had no water, so they had to dig a well, and they were having a hard time. They had to dig several holes before they hit water. All right, but I got I to, I gotta, sorry, I got to speed up the, the process here. Um, one of the things that happened in Russia with Vlad was Vlad had a lot of friends in American churches. And the church in Nizhny Novgorod, um, Vlad, one of the reasons why God, Vlad felt God was calling him to leave was because a lot of times the, the, the American um, connections that Vlad had helped prop up his church. And oftentimes, um, when, when they got into a jam and a need, Vlad would call and make connections with, with the churches that, that he had worked with for 22 years and, and relationships with our church and lots of other churches that Vlad was a part of. Um, and they, they would send money. They would provide. They would help him. And the people in his church began to not necessarily have to have faith to... Um, to, to, to provide and to give the things that, that were a part of the local church. And so it was, it was hindering the church. And Vlad felt like he had brought them as far as he could bring them. And the guy that he was ra- raising up, Ilios under, not Ilios, um, it's Russian name, that's a Spanish name. Um, it's close. Okay, the guy that he, the, the pastor, that he was the right guy and that they were now going to be on their own and he could take them to the next step of faith. So, um, so anyways, for us, now back to us. Kind of the same thing where Vlad was. Like, he had been propped up. And we, we said, we don't want to do that. So we put it out there, and we, we gave the church, like, I don't know, six weeks, eight weeks. I, I did a lot of talking about money. I taught through some money chapters in the Bible. And, um, and, and on, on a Sunday that we set aside just to see where we were as a church, um, the offering in one Sunday, and then um, if I put together, because some people that knew was going to be a part of it had given early, some people had given late. But when we put it on, I think that that Sunday was like 56000 came in on one Sunday. But everything that came in in that one offering was actually closer to about 70000 Okay, So that's just right here, $70,000 in one week, miraculously. And it wasn't any, there was one huge check. There was one check for $25,000. So who can, who can subtract twenty five from seventy? Okay, that's what came just supernaturally by everybody giving what they wanted to and could give to be a part of that. And then so now we had 
uh, about 120000 We needed 90000 to close escrow and to buy the building. We wrote a check for 90000 We closed escrow, and we had 30000 left, and we had a missionary team from California consisting of about 17 guys that were going to come up and start this remodel project. And we were going to take the 30000 that, that that we had and spend it to, to have what you see now. And that's exactly what we did. And then we said that, that after the 30000 is gone, we're going to continue to add to the remodel project as God provides. Well, since then, since we closed escrow, we closed escrow in October. At the end of October, we began the, the construction project on November 1st. And we had $30,000 left, and that's operating budget and everything, on November 1st. And, and since November 1st, we've spent that thirty. God has given us another 30, and we're up to about 65, maybe 70,000 that we've put into this remodel project. You guys say, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. It, it adds up so fast. I was showing Jeff, the contractor, all, all my notes of where we're spending it. You know, in the bathroom alone, $12,000 for those two bathrooms. That's what we had to spend to, to put those two bathrooms in, twelve grand. Um, the chairs that you guys are all sitting in, these new gray chairs, you know, $4,000. Um, so it just, it just adds up quick, just right there, just in the chairs in the bathroom, 16000 So, um, So I'm showing Jeff the list, and he's like, dude, I do this for a living. You don't got to show me. Put your list away. But it adds up fast. So we, we made a push to finish the sanctuary, and we are almost 100% done with the sanctuary. Praise God. I, I never asked you guys. You guys, the new, the new Jesus sign came out pretty cool, right? How about my fancy new pulpit the guys built me? Praise God. Yeah. Thank you guys again. Um, so... So we, we've been um, now in a season where um, we are kind of on hold as far as construction goes. And this is kind of recent. We have a couple big things coming up. Okay? We, we were worried that the, the way when we did the remodel project, that the existing HVAC systems that we had that are old, this building is old, they're old, we had to remove one because there was four units, and each unit had one system. So we had four systems. Now we're running this whole area here on, on one, what used to be two, and then and this has their own, this has their own. But we're worried that we're going to be really hot in the summer in here. We're not going to be able to keep you guys cool. So we're going to need to redo the HVAC. That's about $25,000 to do the whole building to do it right. Okay? Um, as you see, the, there's a vision that we want to build a coffee shop and a lobby and a kind of a Starbucks entrance so you guys can come in. We'll have some continental breakfast. You can get a yogurt. You can get a bagel. You can sit down at some tables, sit in the couch order your fancy coffee. I see you guys show up all the time with Jana's and Starbucks. Well, you're not going to have to do that anymore. You'll be able to get it here um, and enjoy yourself. There'll be a, a TV out there where the sermon will be on, so you can sit down on the couches out there if you'd like to. Um, also, you can bring your coffee in here. There's nothing sacred. We did carpet squares, so if you spill your coffee, we can rip it up and put another one down, and we'll tear the carpet out before we'll, we'll not let you guys enjoy you know, yourselves. But you can sit out there. That's vision for that. Then behind there, where it's a tool room right now, is going to be conference room, and where the ladies study, the men study, the ladies studies now is meeting in children's ministry, and the guys, we just kind of land wherever we want on Sunday nights. Um, that, that'll be what that is for. It'll look much like what the overflow room looks like, kind of same design as the sanctuary, little drop ceiling, same, same setup with some big tables, conference rooms, and that's what'll be in that front area. As far as completing that side of our construction project, again, we're in a place where we're, we're just waiting for God to provide. So um, one of the things I've talked about a couple times is an espresso machine and how expensive they are. So some people like, don't like the idea of us spending five grand on the espresso machine. Like, I get it. But I, I at least want to say this about it. Somebody wrote a check, and I don't know who it is, I promise. If you're in here, <laughs> I didn't see it. I just heard about it. 
They said they wrote us a check, a tithe check to the church, and they said, for anything but that espresso machine you talked about. <laughs> so, I, so I get it. So I get it. I understand there, there's some legitimate concern about $5,000 for an espresso machine. So I just want to say this about it. The vision for the coffee shop is that it's a luxury. Okay? Understand we have some, some things that we need to do first. We're going to finish the lobby. We're going to finish the conference room. We're going to finish the HVAC. We're going to, uh, we have a, a little bit of bad debt. We have about $6,000 right now of bad debt that we need to pay. Okay, we're going to pay back the $6,000 of bad debt. We don't have any other bad debt besides that. It won't take us long to pay it off. We've been absolutely, for the last five months, since November 1st, every week spending almost every dollar that we're receiving in building and constructing and in improving um, the sanctuary and the church for you guys, for us, for um, visitors. And so we're, we're stopping that. We've stopped that now so we can build some money, pay back a little bit of bad debt, um, finish the things that we've started. And when, the, when those things are finished, at some point, so rub your ears if you have to, okay? Deep, deep breath. It'll be a luxury. It'll be the last thing. It'll be after everything else is finished. We are going to buy an espresso machine. Okay? That is a part of the coffee shop vision. Um, we hope it'll bless you. The vision for that is that you can still get free coffee, um, donuts, cookies, stuff, and th- there will be a price for the fancy coffees. And it'll take a little bit, and, but if you want to buy a, you know, anything, any money you spend at Jana's, if you can spend it here, then, then we, any money you spend at Starbucks, wherever, coffee bean, if you spend it here on Sunday mornings, eventually at least, and we don't need to make money on it, but we should at least break even on the, the coffee shop vision that we have, Okay. And then I want to tell you this, like every church in America, not every church, all the good ones, have a coffee shop. Okay. All right. I'm done. Um, hey, what? Okay. So yeah. So hey, real quick, just on that too. One of the things that um, financial wise, and then I'm, I'm sorry, guys, I just, I think maybe this needed to be done. But um, one of the things that we have vision for as a church financially is that we want to be a church that's, that's giving. Because here, here's our philosophy. We can't outgive God. And, and if we believe in investing in God's kingdom, and we're asking all of you guys to take steps of faith with your finances and to invest in God's kingdom, then we feel like we as a church should, should model that standard. That we should also, as a church, take steps of faith. And, and because we believe God's going to bless us for that. And I could tell you the story. It's a long story. It's a beautiful story about churches that support missions. I don't have time to tell you the whole story. But I just say this, that God blesses churches that, that are doing missionary work. They're, they're making their bills. They're paying their bills. The bank president's telling us they're, they're surviving. The churches that are holding and hoarding everything that they're getting, they're, they're struggling to make their bills. But the churches that are giving away what God is giving them, God continues to pour back in. And that's our philosophy and that's our vision here. Okay? So one of the things that we've tried to do as a small church, and we've been super successful, you guys, and you can pat yourselves on the back because this is all what you guys have done. But we've given some really large gifts um, ministry-wise to missions. And, and, and one time we were involved in something that was national for all the churches in the nation to be a part of. And we prayed as a church, and we picked an amount, and we wrote a check. And, and when it came back, after it was all said and done, they were trying to raise $160,000 for an Iranian pastor and for his family to be able to, to live. We wrote a check, and when, when, they, when they had got to 160000 our church wrote the second largest check in the whole pile from our little church. And for a long time, we were number one. The largest check that came up was from our church. 
And then the pastor who was heading it up, he called me and he said, hey, you know that number one title that you guys' church had? He said, you just lost it. I just got a check from another church. And I said, well, how much more than mine was it? And he said, about $1,000. And I said, so you need $1,200 for us to be first again? And he said, yeah. And I said, all right, second place sounds good. (laughs) But we've been super faithful. We gave two years ago, we wrote a check for $10,000 to an orphanage in Africa. Um, Vlad is one of our missionaries. Uh, we have um, Jeremy and um, Stacy Bear, who are in Serbia. They are another one of our, our missionaries that we support. Now, one of the things about supporting foreign missions and missionaries, and we do a lot in-house as well, you guys, is benevolence. We've given away a ton in our own county, to our own church, to our own people in lots of ways. Probably the biggest number that would exceed the 10,000 and the other gifts that we give one time um, would be the, the area where we're doing stuff locally as a church. But again, we want to step out in faith. Well, as this construction project began, um, we haven't done anything for a a while um, to give out. But we haven't just been in that season. And so part of the board and and Lydia's dad, who just has lots of wisdom, right, and and, and my pastor, he said, said, Chris, I know what you want to do. He said, but to be true, and he has a big, huge church, and he said there was a season when we were growing that we couldn't do a lot to missions and that we had to build our base But if we built our base successfully and we really focused on our base, we would get to a point where we would be in a much better position to do tons for missions. And last year, um, Joshua Springs gave $600,000 to missions work. $600,000 in missions. And and so they didn't give 600,000 in the early days. They were building. And he said, so it's okay. Like there's a season where you got to build your base. So the board met this last week, and um, Brian had brought up, he said, you know, about missions, we just want to make sure that we, we still keep that. Because it has to be for us, we want it to be for us, a step of faith. Okay, if we just have an abundance and we write a check and it doesn't bother us, it doesn't hurt us as a church, it doesn't require us to have any faith, that's not the way we want to give, that's not the way we like to give. We, we want to do it in such a way that it requires faith for us to write the check and step out. So anyways, I got, a, I got an email from uh, Vlad. And just before this, Brian um, had brought it up in the board meeting. He said, you know, let's keep the the mission's vision alive even through this season. And so I said, yeah, we we, we definitely do want to do that. We've had had a season of having to try to focus on home. And we haven't avoided anything, but they're just God hasn't. And we're not just going to make up things to give out money. But when God puts something on our heart, we want to we want to step out in faith. When God calls us as a church. So we as a board said, yeah, as soon as, you know, if, if, but God just hasn't really impressed anything upon us. Like two days later, I get this email from Vlad. I'm like, okay, God. So Vlad, Vlad emailed me this last week and he said, hey, brother, Chris, how are you doing? Judging by Facebook posts, not bad at all. Praise the Lord, man. You and Lydia and your family and church are an amazing blessing to Savetha and I. Thank you, brother. We, we thank the Lord. This isn't somebody about to ask you for money. We thank the Lord for you. May the Lord bless you even more in all your ways. We are exploring the needs and ministry opportunities and evangelism pathways here in Sarkatelevo. I should have just kept going. I know it could be a blessing for you and your church to come and do some short-term missions and condensed class teaching here in the future. We'll be happy to see you come and teach with the CBI. That's the Calvary Bible Institute program that we are starting here. Pray about it. If the Lord gives you and your church leaders joy then put us in your 2020 ministry calendar. I know you are a busy man, but if God guides, he provides. It would be great for us to fellowship and do some ministry together. It's an amazing country. We love and miss you. May the Lord richly bless you. 
Vlad and Saveta. And he goes on to basically to say that the, the ministry has some needs and if we as a church would pray about um, making a donation to the building project. So it was like totally the Lord. So I, I showed it to the board and I said, it's so funny, right? We just brought this up. So anyways, this week we sent Vlad and Saveta, just FYA, $2,000 towards their, their building project. So that's a check that we wrote um, for missions this week to uh, Georgia in our effort just to step out in faith. Amen? All right. Did I say it all? I said way too much. You guys are like, didn't I come to a Bible study? You know I'm desperate if I'm drinking Pellegrino. It was the only thing I could find cold in the fridge. This stuff is nasty, man. But it's wet and cold, so. And Dan don't have any waters for me, so he's got, he's got a ministry here. He's supposed to get waters and just, like he had one job. <laughs> I got to drink Pellegrino, man. All right, so um, let's go uh, Matthew 27. All right, we're in a hurry now. We got so much to cover. Matthew 27, verse 32. <laughs> now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by the name, by name. Him they compelled to bear the cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of the skull. Just FYI, in verse 33. That term Golgotha or the place of skull in English is Calvary. That's what your church that you're a part of is named after Calvary Chapel. Comes right here from verse 33, Golgotha or skull. So Calvary literally means the place of the skull or Golgotha, the place where Jesus died on the cross. And then it says, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. It had a painkiller in it and Jesus refused to take that. In verse 35, it says, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourselves. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. If he trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. That's from noon to three o'clock. So when Jesus was hung on a cross at 9 a.m., from 9 a.m. to noon, it was light. From noon to three o'clock, there was a darkness like the long day of Joshua at noon with the brightness of the, of the noon day came dark. The stars would have came out and it would have just become as dark as as night from noon to three as Jesus hung on the cross. And in verse 46, and it says about the ninth hour, the ninth hour is three o'clock, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So verse 46 is what's going to bring us to Psalm 22 today. Jesus cried out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, the Bible 
um, verses, and the Bible is inspired by the, by the Word of God. We talk about prophecy and God giving us thousands of years before events happen as if He saw them in the future. And the prophetic aspect of the Word of God, which separates it from any other book in the world. You know, if one prophecy of the Bible fails, we can throw it in the trash and we can all go home because the whole Bible is bad. Every prophecy, 100% of them, have to come to pass. And not one can fail. Because the sign of a true prophet is 100% accurate, accuracy. And if God is the one making the predictions, he can't fail. And he never has, and he never will fail. And every part of it, 100% of it has come true. And so we get this, this prophecy. Now, in the Old Testament, the... Um, and really, it was more modern that we added the chapters and verses in the Bible, right? When Isaiah wrote, he didn't write Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2, Isaiah chapter 2. He wrote the scroll of Isaiah. He, he, he wrote the prophecy. And then later, in order for us to find and, and to organize it, we added chapters and verses. So we always say the word of God is inspired. The chapters and verses, not so much. I think they did a good job. I think the Spirit of God was in it. But sometimes we think, and maybe we're wrong, they're right. I don't know, we're right, they're wrong. We say, oh, the, the chapter ends right here, but they really should have ended the chapter three verses later because this is where the new idea starts. This is where the new thought begins, and this one actually goes with this one. And so sometimes we'll critique the chapters and verses a little bit as we read through the Bible, but they weren't there in the old days. In the old days, in Jesus' days, and then, and then long after that, there was such a high biblical accuracy and literacy. The way that they would tell a class, the way they would tell a church setting how to find a Bible verse is they would quote it. Or they would usually quote the first line of the chapter of the area in the Bible they were supposed to go. And everybody in class, can you imagine? Today in our Bibles, we're going to be in he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And you all just open your Bibles right to Second Corinthians. Right? I got one you guys might be able to get, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Where would you guys turn? <laughs> How about, uh, now I can't think of any. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Anybody else but Lydia? Someone said John, but nobody quoted. John 14. Every Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. In the Bible. All right. So we got some work to do. Right. But can you imagine? Imagine how, how well we would do if our biblical literacy was really that high. And that's the way it was. And, and so Jesus, when he's on the cross and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, he was telling those in the crowd, he was referencing Psalm 22. And they would have understood that very clearly. A psalm written a thousand years before Jesus dies on the cross. In detail, what's going to happen on the cross? A psalm that was written 600 years before crucifixion was even invented. The Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans adopted it and capitalized on it. Do you, do you realize that some crazy six demonic satanic scientists in the Persian kingdom somewhere back in history, a couple hundred years after King David, he, he comes up with, I'm sure demonically inspired, the, a way to crucify, a way to torture people, keep them alive, and make them feel the most pain possible. It doesn't seem like that would work, right? Like crucifixion, what's the big deal? As we begin to go through the absolute torture mechanism and cruelty and violent 
difficult death that, 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 the, that the crucifixion is, you'll see exactly where it's just demonic and it's evil, right? And, and, and men have been pretty good at, at torturing one another, you know, and coming up with schemes. But th- this one is demonic and, and it works and it's crazy the, all the way through. Now, now, really quickly, just one thing. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. In English, that means my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Okay. I don't know how much we've unpacked this, this idea. I think I've talked about it a little bit. I talked about it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because it was this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane that had Jesus sweating great drops of blood, as it were. It was this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that God had to send an angel into the garden to minister to Jesus because he so dreaded this moment in human history where God would forsake him. The only time in eternity, past or future, where there would be a separation between the Father and the Son. And that separation was so scary and so deadly to Jesus that, that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Even a momentary separation from God. As God takes his wrath and he pours out his wrath upon his son. And and the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Okay? And, And so on this moment, Jesus, he doesn't die for your sins only. He becomes sin. And in that moment, God separates from Jesus. And this is that moment. Now, as Jesus is hanging on the cross and he he cries out, God, God, why have you forsaken me? You know what's so powerful about this? God forsook his son, Jesus, in this moment. So let me ask you guys, raise your hands. Pray this prayer to Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How does that feel? It feel totally awkward because you can't pray that prayer. God will never forsake you or leave you. Jesus on the cross said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus himself went through something so you didn't have to. You can never pray, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Because God will never leave you nor forsake you. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen? Amen. All right, so that brings us to Psalm 22. About six minutes in Psalms 22, and it's going to take me about 26. So, uh, and then communion today. You guys see the first Sunday of the month, communion set up. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You so far from helping me. In the words of my groanings, and my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear me. Nine to noon, Jesus was on the cross in the daytime. And in the night season, I am not silent. Twelve to three, Jesus was hanging on the cross in complete darkness. You could also maybe add to the second half of verse 2, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was in the darkness seeking God. And in verse 3, in the worst moment of Jesus' life, Jesus makes a decision. He says, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Everybody say praises. Jesus made a decision in a, in, in a time when he felt forsaken and, and by God and the wrath of God coming down on him, a time in his life that was the absolute most dreadful, worst experience that, that Jesus in the flesh would ever experience. And he made a decision in this moment in verse 3 to praise God. He, he, he wanted to show up and give God praise. And he just got through saying, in the daytime I seek you and you're not there. In the nighttime I look for you and you're nowhere to be found. Yet I will praise you. Ha! Yet, I will, yet I will sing to you. If you can't find God, if you feel, and I hear this all the time, and I experience it, so, I, so I'm with you. 
You don't feel God. You feel a little forsooken in the moment. You feel a little desperate. Listen, when you're desperate, when you don't feel God in your life, you do what Jesus did on the cross, and you say, I'll praise God. You know what you do? You know what you do as a remedy? Number one, you get your eyes off yourself. You're going to be miserable if you keep staring at yourself all the time, especially if you look like me. And, and, or have my problems, right? I'd just be miserable if I focused on myself all the time. Maybe go find somebody else who's hurting and serve them. Find some joy in that. Number one, get your eyes off yourself. And number two, go to the place where people are praising God and praise God. And if that place is in your bedroom with the worship music loud, if that place is wherever, if you're not at a point where you can come and praise God, you know what's so important, you guys, that during worship um, music and, and, and times of communion that we're going to do and the things we do as a church to focus solely on, on worshiping God from our hearts, that you guys take advantage of that, that you pour your hearts out to God, that you use that time, it's valuable, valuable time. It's not done to fill time in church. It's biblical. Jesus and the disciples modeled it. The entire Bible is about it. Entire Psalms is, is written to music and is worship. And, it, and it's power for your soul. Martha and Mary, I'm sorry, Mary, remember we studied a couple weeks ago, she pours the oil on Jesus' feet and begins to praise him. And, and she was the only one in that moment who understood and had God-given revelation in her life that Jesus was going to die on the cross. The rest of the disciples missed it. Where did she receive that revelation? In worship. Where does God often meet you? Where does God often come and, and connect with you? It's as you worship him. As you find a way in your heart to close your eyes, do whatever you got to take, Calgon, take me away, and get in a position where your heart is worshiping God. It's in that place that God brings revelation. It's in that place that God brings healing for your depression. It's in that place that God ministers life to you in worship. And so take advantage of that. And, and it's so powerful, right, that Jesus, he's not having a good day, Right? How many of you guys, when just life just feels like it's kicking you in the butt, how many of you guys think, man, I just, I just want to go to church? No, you lying. <laughs> Maybe a few of you real spiritual people, but most of us are like, that's the last time we want to be in church. Like, I just, I just want to flick in a bag of popcorn. Then I'll feel better. I just don't want to get out of my pajamas for two days. And then two days go by, and you're like, you don't feel any better. Nothing changed. It just got worse. You just feel sorrier for yourself than when you started. Had your eyes on yourself the whole time and a bag of popcorn. I get it, right? Like, it's not our first reaction when, when things don't go so smoothly in life. But I'll tell you, it is the solution. Come to church. That's when you need to be in church. That's when you need to gather with other believers. Come on Sunday nights. Come on Tuesday nights. Come on Wednesday nights. Come, we're going to start a prayer ministry. and invite everybody to come on, on prayer ministry and come pray. Come gather with believers. Come worship the Lord. Come to God's table when it's time for worship and try to connect with God intimately and personally through those times of worship. Um, our fathers in verse 4 trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. God is trustworthy. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Jesus says in, in Psalm 22 about his time on the cross that he was a worm. Now I want to tell you, one of the Old Testament I am statements of Jesus is I am a worm. We think of the, uh, the great seven great I am statements of Jesus in the New Testament. You can add this one to it. It is prophetic. It's powerful. It is an I am statement. 
What is I am in the Bible? It's a very powerful, um, it is the name of God. And it's very important for you as Christ followers to understand that the I am in the Bible carries so much weight. Where does it come from? It comes from the burning bush. Abraham, God approaches, um, God approaches Abraham in a bush that's burning but will not consume. And he says, he said, did I say Abraham? Sorry. I meant Noah. Apostle John? Peter? Moses. Moses. Moses is there. The bush is on fire. He says, whoa, check that out. And it won't consume. And God begins to speak to him through this bush. And he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him let my people go. And they have a conversation. It goes back and forth. And Moses turns around to leave. He's like, hold on. He's like, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. When I get there, Pharaoh's going to ask me, what's your name? Who are you? Who should I tell him sent me? Kind of like, oh, what's your name? Like after he's already got all this direction and he's like reared, he's going to go. He's finally got to talk him into it. He comes back and he says, what's your name? And everybody's like, that's when the drum roll starts. That's not a drum roll, huh? I need, I need Josh's help here. But that's when the fireworks go off and we have this big pause and everybody inhales. Like, what is he going to say? What is God going to say to Moses that is his name? Now, understand this, first of all. God is just a title. God is not a name. It's not a personal name. Satan is called a God, right? People say, I worship God or I pray to God. You have no idea what they're talking about. It could be any kind of God. There's lots of gods. There's lots of false gods and idols. And God is just a, just a title that lots of false deities wear. But the name of God is what, it, is what Moses is about to get. And God says, I am that I am. And Moses is like, no, that's not what I wanted to hear. What does that mean? What in the world does that mean? I am that I am. But that I am... When we see it in the Old Testament, we call it the Tetragrammaton. It's the Y-H-V-H because the name is Yahweh, Yehovah. And the, the, the problem is the Jews never recorded um, vows because they didn't ever want to miss, um, disrespect the name of God, do the name of God, any kind of disservice. So they would never write the vows in the name. They only wrote the consonants. To this day, you ever seen a Jew write the name God? G-D, right? And, and so... We, we get this YHVH, this tetragrammaton um, name of God. I am. John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Before Abraham was, ego ami, I am. He said, Before Abraham was, Yahweh. I am, I was, I will be. The God of heaven, and, and, and he claims deity in John chapter 8. I am. What did the Pharisees who heard that, what did they do? What did they do? Brian, what did they do? They picked up rocks, and they were going to kill him. Why did, why did the Pharisees pick up rocks to kill Jesus in John chapter 8? Because they had enough of his blasphemy, and he just claimed to be the very God of the Old Testament in the flesh. And for this reason, they understood very clearly what he was claiming and what he said. And he, they went to pick up rocks to stone him. And, they, and Jesus got out of there. It wasn't his time. His hour had not yet come. But that's the, the great I am, the, the tetragrammaton. Um, so that, that's verse 6, I am. 
a worm. Now, this word worm, um, if you take notes, it's toloth, okay? Um, it means it's, it's basically a worm. It's literally a worm. Um, this, this little toloth worm in the Middle East is how we, or where we get the color scarlet from. What color is scarlet? Red or crimson. And the way that you would dye, like in the, in the old days, and they're probably still similar to some extent, but you had certain ingredients, right, that made colors. So for the, the kings, the color of, of, of royalty was purple. And so you had a way to make purple dyes for the clothing. Well, in order to make red and scarlet color, you take this toloff worm, and they would farm them and raise them, and they would actually smash them up. And when they would smash them up, it would turn into this scarlet red, the blood. And this is, would be the dye that they would use in a toloff worm or where we get the idea scarlet. Now, the science, the true um, fact is God actually created this creature special to be a picture of his son. And Jesus says of himself here in Psalm 22, I am toloff. A toloff worm, when it comes to the end of its life or it comes to the time where it's ready to reproduce and have offspring, it climbs up a tree, attaches itself somewhere, and a toloff worm explodes violently. And this crimson color that it's made from on the inside makes a little splatter. And the babies, the young, are also born in that, in that moment. They come out. And then they eat the flesh of the parent in order to survive and get enough energy that they need to climb down the tree and go on to life until their cycle of life comes and they climb up a tree somewhere and they explode. Now, now just that, that Jesus dies so that you and I could have life is the first part of that. And then, then what else is super powerful about this little thing where Jesus here in Psalm 22 says, I am Tolaf or I am a worm, is, is that red stain that's left on the tree or on the thing. Those scientists who study this stuff, they tell us that the, the sun or the elements, eventually after three days, it, 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 it bleaches out the color and it becomes white as snow and it flakes off and falls to the ground. Tolaf, the scientific little worm in Israel, in the Middle East, that God created to tell a picture. And Jesus identifies with this to tell the picture that, that he is a worm. And that's what that means. And no man, a reproach of men. You know, this worm that explodes and the, 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 the young that, that he died for, it has to die for the others to live. You know, they said to Jesus, take yourself down off the cross. You saved others yourself you cannot save. You saved others, true. Yourself you cannot save, false. Jesus could have saved himself. He could have come down off the cross. He could have called 72,000 angels to his side to protect him. But he, he stayed on the cross so that you and I could go to heaven. He stayed on the cross so that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. You know how many times you're going to hear me say that in the next three, four weeks, in the past three or four weeks, until we all memorize it? Because it is so powerful. Who does that? Who does that, man? Who becomes sin and and experiences the wrath of God, stays on the cross so that you could become the righteousness of God? Who prays? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me so that you and I could never pray that prayer? Only Jesus, only the power of Jesus and his great love for you and I that that he dies on the tree and what the the tree accomplishes 
So we're about one minute left, you guys, and then we're going to invite the worship team to come up and, and lead us in a couple songs so we can receive communion. Um, let me see if I can cover maybe one more verse. We're going to take the second half of um, Psalm 22 next week. So make sure you come back. I really want you to catch the rest of this. Um, in verse 7, it says, All those who see me ridicule me. They shout out the lip. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Somebody write Matthew twenty-seven forty-three next to that. And when you get a minute, go compare verse 8 and Matthew twenty-seven forty-three, and you'll see the words are identical. A thousand years before Jesus dies on the cross, he, he writes in this prophecy the very things that are going to come out of the mouths of the people that are going to be yelling at him at the foot of the cross. Every one of them. And it's, it's word for word what happens. But you are he who took me out of the womb. Oh, if I start this, we're never going to finish. Hey, Brian, if you guys are ready, come on up now. Um, if I start verse 9, you guys, I'm going to start preaching and we're going to get in trouble. Um, oh, I better not. It's kind of heavy. It's kind of heavy. Save it for next week. Um, Come back next week. We'll talk about it. But so much in this chapter, you guys. Uh, read ahead, please, and, and, and just go through it. And then we're going to finish up chapter 22 next week. Then that will set us up for uh, Matthew 27 for Easter, Easter morning. Um, I think our devotion is pretty much uh, our communion devotion has been done already. I always spend a few minutes preparing us for, um, for devotion or for communion. But, um, you know, Jesus is our communion. Jesus is our uh, our last supper, the the bread and the and the cup that we'll receive today. The bread represents the body of Jesus Jesus that was broken for us. The cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. The Bible says for us as Christ followers, for us as as, as Christians, that that as often as we do this, to do it in remembrance of Him. And it's 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 a, something that that God instituted for New Testament believers. It's one of the ceremonies. It's one of the rituals that, that God wants us to continue until he comes. Some, some ended when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. But communion is one that, that God instituted and Jesus instituted and, and calls us, you and I, to take part in. And, and so when we receive communion, it's, it's a spiritual moment. You know, sometimes I, ask, I get people asking me around a communion service, and it's always a little bit dicey, but it is what it is. And we try to do it in love, but they say, who's... You know, I went to another church and, and only certain people can receive communion. What do you, what do you guys do about that? And, and I always tell them that, that everybody's welcome to receive communion. But here's what I do say. Is that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this makes no sense. Why, why would you take the body and blood of Jesus and you're, you're not a Christ follower? It, it, it's probably better at that moment, you know, just to, just to not partake. Or you got much, much, much better plan. Why don't you become a believer in Jesus, ask him in your life right now, get right with God, and come and receive at the Lord's table. Come and receive in the Lord's Supper. And again, we make no rules about who's worthy and who's not. That's up to you to decide. I don't, I don't pretend to, to, to look into anybody's life with any kind of magic goggles that people use to look into hats and stuff like that. I just, God knows. It's between you and the Lord. It's between you and the Lord whether, you know, just, just be right with God. Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. So I encourage you guys, as we sing the last song, we're going to invite you to come up, take the bread and the cup back to your seat, and spend one song communing and fellowshipping with God. Thank him.
for his body that was broken for you. Thank him for his, the cup that represents his blood that was shed for you. And, and make an intimate time. If you need to make your peace with God, come get the bread and the cup. Go sit down and take two, three seconds before you receive to, to get right with God. And just ask God forgiveness and ask God to move and ask God to, to heal you and change you and fix you and come in your life. Or just say yes to Jesus. That's, that's what salvation is. It's really that simple. You surrendering and saying yes to what Jesus wants to do in your life. Now, I'm not much of a hymn guy, but I'll tell you this one is pretty good. You guys know the old rugged cross, right? It says, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. And I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange in some day and exchange it someday for a crown. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I will cling to the old rugged cross and someday exchange it for a crown. I'm encouraging every one of us to just cling to the cross. Cling to that old rugged cross and, and someday I'll exchange it for a crown. What is that crown that you're going to exchange for? You know, the Bible talks about seven crowns that God's going to give you when you get to heaven. And in James chapter 1 and verse 12, he says there's a crown for those who love Jesus. If you love Jesus in this life, when you get to heaven, it's one of the seven rewards that God's going to give you. It's a crown of, of righteousness for just loving Jesus, James 1.12. And if you just cling to that old rugged cross and you just love Jesus with your life, God's going to honor you for that one day. And I encourage every one of you to love Jesus in your life. Cling to that cross. You know how often I need to come and cling to the cross of Jesus? Every day, every moment. I spend every Sunday morning, I spend every time and mornings and weeks and just, just begging God, just trying to cling to that cross and asking for forgiveness and closeness and, and touch and, and relationship and constantly coming to God and asking God to just be a part of my life and to help me and to touch me and to change me and clinging to that cross because I need that cross. I need that old rugged cross. I just want to love Jesus. So I encourage every one of you guys, come to the cross of Jesus. Come to the communion table. Spend one song communing with God. Amen. Father, we thank you. We praise you, God. We give you glory and honor. Lord, we, we thank you for your body that was broken for us, God. We thank you for your blood that was shed for us. Lord, as we receive communion as a family of believers, I pray that each one of us in our hearts, God, would get right with you. I pray, Father, if, if the, the folks that are in here that today need to say yes to Jesus, that, God, as they receive communion this morning, that they would just say yes to Jesus in their hearts and their lives. And, Lord, I thank you for each one of us, God. And we want to have that crown in James 1:12 because it's a good way to live life, loving Jesus. And, and, Lord, I love Jesus, and I love people that love Jesus. And I look for people that love Jesus to put in my life and to surround my life with. And, God, the number one quality that I, that I think in people that's valuable is people that love Jesus. I want my sons to marry daughters that love Jesus. I want to put friends and family and people around me that love Jesus. And so God, help us to love you. Help us to in our heart know you and have intimacy with you. So God, we thank you for the love of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.